Welcome to Adulthood Made Easy, a podcast from Real Simple Magazine that will not only help you navigate real life, but win it real life. I'm your host, Sam Zabel. We are taping this show just two days after Election Day. And I don't know about you, but I'm feeling very tired, very sad, and many more emotions that we don't have time to get into right now. But I also feel very activated, and I want to use my voice and do important work and help people tell their stories. As a journalist, that seems more important to me now than ever. So I'm joined by someone today who, at 28 years old, is doing just that. Nelifar Hadayat is an award-winning British journalist and TV host originally born in Kabul, Afghanistan. She has worked at the BBC, Channel 4, and The Guardian, and now is working with Fusion on a new global investigative docuseries called The Traffickers, which explores the black market, human trafficking, organ trafficking, gun trafficking, and more. And the eight-part series premieres Sunday, November 13th on Fusion. She has co-produced and written several other impressive documentaries, including Shot for Going to School and Women Wore Weddings and Me, which won a Broadcast Digital Award. So I'd like to talk to Nell today about what it's like to be such an important journalist at such a young age, especially considering the current climate in America and around the world. So welcome, Nell. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. I'm sure people listening are like, wow, this is not what we usually get. Usually I'm like, well, today I didn't know how to make an omelet, so I went to cook. But I think it's important to switch things up, and it felt like this came at a time when, I mean, we were just talking for 15, 20 minutes about everything that's been going on. And as you know, you and I are both like on zero sleep. Yes, that's (laughs) absolutely true. I needed caffeine the minute I walked in this building. And how long have you been in the States right now so it's i've been this i've been back and forth for about two months now going various places actually um my last trip took me to san diego to um la i went through to san francisco chicago um where i did a um young turks kind of show actually we did Mm -hmm. um with axelrod david axelrod Mm -hmm. former uh special advisor to president barack obama which was an interesting and this was when he was absolutely certain Hillary Clinton was going to become the next president, which is right. very, which I'm now thinking about going, ah, a bit presumptive, yeah. mate. Yeah. Um, and now I'm mainly in New York promoting the traffickers and also in Miami doing election coverage. So I was much like you, Sam, just kind of in the thick of it a couple of nights ago going, how has this happened? I know. So like we said, you are obviously a very accomplished journalist and you're 28 years old. I'm about, I'm just shy of 25. So I very much look up to you as someone who has, well, I think about myself in journalism school. I was too scared to even talk to my neighbors about stories I was working on in class. And you have gone all over the world. Um, I was reading that you actually, you were a war refugee from Afghanistan, correct? Yes, that's correct. Yes. And so I read your focus now is mostly on cultural upheaval experienced by women, children, and families in conflict-ridden areas. Yes. And like I said, I could not go next door to be like, what do you like in the cafeteria? But do you so, know what? I guarantee you, Sam, that if I put you in the thick of it, you will respond and react the way you've been trained, the way you've been taught. I think I think for a lot of journalists, this we and I was exactly like you at 25, this idea that um, can I ever be good enough? Mm-hmm. I'm, how, why would I? Where would anyone listen to me? And this doesn't just go for journalists. And this goes for kind of young people generally. Why would anyone listen to me? What voice do I have? I'm never going to be such and such or get to this uh, this place. And if the last sort of two years specifically has taught me anything, is 
people take you as seriously as you take yourself. Like my favorite TED Talks mm-hmm. is the one called Fake It Till You Make It. Have you seen yes. it? So I make sure I watch that at least once every six months. I like guess religiously that yeah. I do it because I just think it's so important, especially for young women, to not fall into the trappings that w- all of those trappings that are laid out for us that we're not important, our voices don't count or that we can't express ourselves the way we want to. And this this kind of was an epiphany, a moment of like real, huh, for me that, hold on a minute, I'm a refugee, I'm an illegal immigrant, I'm a brown woman, I'm a Muslim. And although most of society and most of the people out there think all of those things hold me back, actually, if you really put yourself out there, people do, I mean, I'm talking to you yeah, right now. Absolutely. I mean, people do want to listen. You just have to fight for that. And when was the first, like, what was your first journalism job? When was the first time you put yourself out there? I was, do you know what? I was always meant to be a radio DJ. Really? I was, yes. So when I, before I started television work, um, I did it when I was 19. I got my break when I was 19. I was very fortunate to be, and I have to remember to say this the right way. I was the right person at the right time. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't lucky. I was just what they were looking for when they were looking for it. Um, but I used to want to do exactly what you're doing, um, make podcasts. I want to make radio documentaries. That was my first passion. And then the Afghan war happened. Um, Britain, America, Italy, France, Switzerland, ISAF, as they collectively were known, went into my country um, and decided to, you know, fight terrorism wherever that many-headed beast lies. Um so then all of a sudden it became very important that young people's voices, that women's voices were heard in Afghanistan. So I just pitched left, right and center. Um, I put myself out there, you know, mm-hmm. um, and a very, very talented channel controller called Danny Cohen um, commissioned. He said, why, why not? We'll take a chance on you. Let's go back to Afghanistan for a month. You can go and you can just explore things. And that's what won me my awards. It it did really well for me. It got really great reviews. Um, But more importantly, when they kind of surveyed people who were watching it, it got some of the highest appreciation ratings of any film the BBC has ever made. Because And what was that? the name of that film was? Afghan. uh, It was the Afghan film. So it was the uh, Women's Weddings War and Me film. Right. Which I think is available on YouTube in some dark nefarious part of it illegally somewhere (laughs) you can definitely find it but the point was that bbc3 at the time danny cohen and young people and viewers were desperate to hear from afghanistan from this far-flung place of the earth that america and britain will forever be connected to Mm -hmm. you can't get rid of that connection and they wanted to understand it in a different way and so i thought look i bridged this gap between west and east first world and third um between our you know way of thinking our um you know democratic quite liberal open-minded nation and what seems to be this utterly atavistic you know narrow-minded hyper-religious country um so we went to afghanistan we explored the various ways women are trying to break out of those cliches that we normally see them in um, some fail, mm-hmm. some succeed. So it was my breakthrough kind of moment. I was I was quite young. I think I was twenty when it came out. Um, 
And I just didn't stop. I wasn't going to stop thereafter. I mean, to be 20 years old and in that type of situation, it feels like a lot of responsibility on you to not only, like you said, represent all these young women who want to be using their voices and also to be a person that all of these women in Afghanistan would trust to talk to and tell their stories. How did you establish that trust and that confidence at such a young age? I think to an extent, if you're drawn to something like journalism, you have that innate ability to connect with people. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not true for all journalists, as we both know. Mm-hmm. Um, but for a lot of us, the reason we want to do, and it's not the easiest industry to work in. It certainly isn't the best way to make money. I promise you that. But um, what it does mean is that there's a certain level of a connection that you make when you're talking to a contributor. I mean, I was visiting, I was 19 years old and I was, I was visiting the only women's shelter in the country. One, the first and only. And um, listening to the most harrowing stories of women walking for three days to get there, who had been raped from 12 till the age of 18 by everybody and anybody who was male in the family, who had been beaten, who had been, um, you know, food was withheld from them. They'd had children that, that they couldn't look after. They were mentally and emotionally tortured. And when you're in that kind of situation and you're taking on this baggage from these people, you have a responsibility to yourself to make sure that you get the best out of them, but also to them to make sure that the version of them that you represent is as true and honest as possible. So these were my people. Mm -hmm. I could have been them. The only difference was was that I got out. Mm -hmm. So I was very passionate about that. And I was so, so lucky to be working with one of the most phenomenal producer-directors, I think, around at the moment, a, a woman called Ruhi Hamid, multi-award winning I mean the list goes on of what she's accomplished but she she taught me as much as possible and and really gave me that field training to be as respectful as possible and um my executive producer now there's a guy called Keith Suma and he keeps sending me these text messages of colleagues he used to have before and one of them is of um I think it's a Peter Jennings quote that says don't strive to speak to the movers and shakers of the world try to speak to the moving and shaken. Oh, I love that. And that, for me, encapsulates perfectly what I think I want to do. I'm not interested in, in, in catching the biggest in interview or the biggest name. For me, it's like, go out there and hear the voices that aren't out there or that people think aren't accessible. Because I'm an Afghan refugee. I am one of those voices. Mm-hmm. It's really, I feel like it's so rare, though, at 28 years old to have such confidence in what you want to do and the direction you want to take your life. I mean, so many people who are young don't haven't developed that identity yet. So how has all of the success and all of these incredible documentaries and projects that you've worked on affected your adulthood trajectory and, and how quickly it seems you've had to grow up and get used to the to really, the real that, world that's a fantastic question and i really i don't think i'm maybe i should get my shrink in here i don't think i'm necessarily <laughs> qualified to answer it but what i would say is that i've i have i've had to work very very hard you know the hardest time the hardest part of of trying to make it in journalism is the beginning when no one's paying you anything and I'm not rich, you mm-hmm. know. My mum was on, you know, social benefits when I was still at university about eight years ago. So I was barely getting by. And that's 
and and I thought, oh, maybe I should just pack it in and go work for, you know, a marketing firm somewhere. Right. We all think that right. at one point. And we're like, <laughs> Goldman Sachs is right across from our offices. And every once in a while, you just look over there and you're like, don't they have maybe, nice suits? Yeah, maybe I should just. <laughs> they look so much warmer than me. <laughs> um, but then I bet the same thing happens to you, Sam, where you think, but if I quit that unique voice that I have or that perspective that I have just will dissipate into nothingness. And then you'll just get middle-aged white men telling you <laughs> about the world ad infinitum, ad nauseum. And I can't be that person. So I think I've had to become very masterful of my own identity, of my own beliefs. I get challenged on them all the time and not necessarily, you know, by people here, but by people from my own community, from my own country. I mean, I get challenged all the time. Um, but the the reward, I mean, we had a screening for the babies film from the traffickers earlier on today. It's the first episode and people can download it for free right now on iTunes if they wanted to. Mm -hmm. um, it's available on iTunes. Um, and I was watching it again and I couldn't stop feeling that I owed it to every single one of those contributors to just continue doing this, to continue promoting it, to continue getting the word out there. Because... You feel so connected to the stories that you cover, as I'm sure you know, that thinking about other things just becomes irrelevant. So that's the kind of headspace I'm in at the moment. I'm like, I've made these eight utterly important films that I believe in fundamentally, that I will defend and, you know, continue to promote to the best of my ability. Because I essentially, you know... I hate to say it, but we're all the same, aren't we? We're just do-gooders. Mm -hmm. You know, we, most we want, of us. Most of us, we want, we want to see change and we want the best things to, to happen to the people that we cover or the issues that we cover. Um, and that's what kind of gets me through. I've, I've been doing this for nine years now and, and, you know, thank, thank goodness I've been afforded a bigger platform to speak to larger people. But essentially it's the same thing I did when I was 19. It's about going out there, finding those people, talking to them and then representing them in the best light possible. So let's talk a little bit about Fake It Till You Make It, which you mentioned was a TED Talk you love and which is something that whether you're an award-winning journalist or in your very first job or still in college, everyone can relate to. So talk to me about what it was like for you to fake it till you made it in such kind of high stakes situations. I have almost no fear that's my that's my single you see I, I was like there's power. there's I was, I was like there's a there's a definitely there we're very different but I, I the one thing I'm sensing is that I would always be like eh, I'm not sure and you probably are like yes <laughs> into it let's do it I'm there I'm already halfway there but men have been doing this for 2,000 years at the very least like that's I mean I look at my male colleagues and bless them and I love them tremendously but like the way they talk up their CVs. I mean, I can remember this one conversation I was having and I won't give you his full name, but my friend Jonathan, who's now a very successful feature documentary maker, you know, with huge, you know, name behind him. But he started out being my runner, getting me my coffees, you know. And I was just like, I was looking through his CV. I don't know why. And I was, and I was like, it says here that you can shoot and edit and do this and do that and you can... And you've done this and that and you, you've worked for, you know, Panorama and da-da-da. And he's like, not, not really. <laughs> and I said, Jonathan, well, they're all on your CV. So if I was to read, I would never put that down unless I knew that you could leave me on my own and I've got it, right? That's right. what I was. And he was like, well, all the other guys are doing it. 
And I don't want to be left out of a job just because I'll learn on the job. And it was that moment, it kind of, I had a penny drop moment where I thought, wait a minute, this is not an even playing field. I am being held back by guys like him who who have less experience or opportunity than I do because they're fearless. And I was like, I'm going to be fearless. That's it. I've had enough. I, I want to be able to be successful and do the journalism that I want to do. And I can't because this guy's lying on his CV. And bless him. And I love him immensely. But I just thought, no, I'm going to do it too. So whenever I go into interviews, whenever I meet new people, it's that same feeling that I have that it's not an even playing field. So we have to fake it till we make it. We have to have that fearless nature. And you're going to get knocks. No doubt about it. I get knocks all the time. So let's talk. So you said you get people, you get knocked or people challenge your ideas. And what does that look like? Where do you, I mean, is it you're definitely, you have a big online presence. Is it people are challenging online? Well, how do you deal with those, the the hate or the challenging or the criticism? What does that look like for you? The So I did a show a little while ago in which I um, made a radio documentary for for BBC One Extra, which I think is still available um, online somewhere, where I perhaps criticised the Muslim community. I'm a Muslim myself, um, and said perhaps the way you do dating or the way you put women on a pedestal is ineffective and slightly outdated. I have never faced such a barrage of criticism mm. in my career. And it was all things like, you're a self-hating Muslim, you are a terrible representative for our community, to to things like, you're a woman, shut up, you know. (laughs) The more intelligent criticisms. Clearly, he thought it through. (laughs) Um, And the way I was just like, and I, I would, you know, crawl into my bed and be like, everyone hates me, they'll hate me, everybody hates me, my own community hates me. And um, I have a very kind of strong role model in my mother and my mum was just like, oh, darling, please. We used to get that in the 60s in Afghanistan when, you, when we used to wear sort of shorter skirts. You're facing this online. They're not even saying it to your face. Get over it, she said. <laughs> so I was like, oh, fair enough. Maybe I should get over it. But it ranges. I mean, at the moment, I have the international adoption lobby who are slightly on my case. They're not very happy with the film I've made about child trafficking in international adoption. The gun lobby are also starting to pipe up because we kind of criticize them. So just a couple of like low key online <laughs> groups that are getting like I'm thinking like once in a while I'll get like a stranger who will tweet at me some guy like I don't know video gamer 43 and you're like well the gun lobby is is on my case well, and I'm like well one time in middle school someone was mean to me <laughs> but 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 like scale it up and it's exactly the same yeah. it's exactly the same thing you, the vitriol never changes and I I I just I find it remarkable that people have that much time on their hands um but but the ones that do I mean I, a lot of people will accuse me of not knowing what I'm talking about or I get this a lot as well and I don't know if you do but are you a mouthpiece or has mm-hmm. has someone else written this for you or are you speaking for yourself and it's like gee gosh I mean I don't know I've used words before so <laughs> I can't remember maybe I should ask someone um that kind of like really reductive backward mentality um where people are just like uh, who's written this script for you? It's like, I wrote the goddamn script. Are you kidding me? Like, back off. So you have to have a thick skin. And I get depressed all the time. I have bad days where I'm in bed and I'm like, the world is a terrible place. And I, my voice, and I just, 
I can't deal. And I lay in bed in my slacks and eat my vegan ice cream. And then I get up the next morning and go to work. And that's, I mean, I that sort of led into my next question because your topics that you cover are heavy and the people who are on your back are big. So everyone's talking about self-care right now and how you kind of separate your work and your life and take care of yourself. What do you do? You can't separate your work and your life. You don't Any, think so? I, I think it's a fallacy. I think it truly is a fallacy. I mean, um, I did a podcast, uh, a Facebook Live, sorry. Um, something. Snapchat, it's Facebook, all the same. Instagram. I, don't know. I can't tell the difference. <laughs> I'm trying to. Um, but with, with um, the wonderful Jorge Ramos of Univision fame, um, just a phenomenal journalist. And one of the questions that he asked me similarly, um, I mean, w- he really wanted to drive down into how you separate your bias from your journalism. So as a refugee, as a feminist, as a Muslim, how do I separate that from my work? And we were talking about it and talking about it. And I don't think you can, but what you can do is be honest about them. So I can't separate the fact that, um, you know, I'm a, a, a feminist mm-hmm. or um, I'm, I'm a progressivist or, or I'm an internationalist in my outlook. But what I can do is to my audience be very honest about that and let them make the judgments. Because I think in this day and age, certainly in the last 10 years, being transparent in your journalism is of the most paramount importance because the bygone days where like this, you know, middle-aged white guy would stand in his khaki trousers in the middle of a war zone and be like, I'm going to tell you the truth with a capital T. (laughs) It's gone. Yeah. That does not flow. You have access to information at just, you know, on light year speed. So all I do in these films and the traffickers is I will tell you when I fail, you'll see me tired. You'll see me grumpy. Um, but then I will go and talk to a sex trafficker and push him as hard as I can to get to the bottom of why and how he allows these mechanisms to operate. And why do you think it's so important that this millennial generation is stepping up to be really hard-hitting journalists, like you're saying, using our voices, you know, not just being the people who get the coffee, but being the people who ask the questions? Because we're actually enlightened. I mean, I'm sorry. I'm naturally biased. Um, That's okay. We're, as I, long as we're honest about it, no, I hear it's fine. <laughs> somebody's saying that. Yes. Who's putting this out? Um, I just think, I think you cannot, you know, forgive me, but you cannot bullshit us anymore with your, with propaganda. I think, um, you know, that version of the truth with a capital T no longer exists. And, and I think millennials certainly... Um, are just cottoning on to the fact that truth is multifaceted in itself. And um, we can go and search and find the versions of things that we want, but also the versions of things we don't want. The one thing I'm very worried about at the moment is the fact that I think as millennials, whether you're right-leaning, left-leaning, upper-class, lower-class, whatever it might be, that the tendency is to surround yourself digitally Mm-hmm. with the voices that you agree with i i think that this election has taught me that that is exactly what i did <laughs> i've i did the exact same during brexit i yeah. would not i if i would have played place a bet i would have bet thousands you know on the fact that we would have stayed in europe because i was surrounding myself with people that were saying and, this and i live in new york and it's like i mean it, it was such a bubble although i'm from ohio but my county is always very 
like just like me. I mean, it's it's the danger of being around only people that are just like you. And I think that that problem is perhaps acutely more unique um, to to millennials because we we do have such a di- such a kind of digital pre- presence and we do see ourselves as more interconnected, mm-hmm. um, perhaps. Um, but the tendency to only hear the voices that echo back to you what you want to hear and only follow those people and only like and retweet and heart those people um is there and that's slightly dangerous um so you i think this election cycle this year certainly has taught many of us in america across the pond and will continue to do so that we've got to be very vigilant um or stuff like this is going to keep happening and we're going to be like how did this happen i can't i can't understand how this happened and what's it like to be a young journalist, uh, you know, minority in this election cycle amidst Brexit? I mean, what has it been like for you? I mean, I thought I was getting away from it coming over here, but I just want to go home now. I mean, it's slightly (laughs) depressing. (laughs) I mean, I remember on June the 24th, I believe, was the day after Brexit. I remember going into work um, and my colleague, Roxana, who's Romanian, and one of my other colleagues, Stefano, who's Italian, just felt rejected and at a loss like what did I do to you guys and those of us sitting around we just felt absolutely awkward because what we had voted for was xenophobia we -hmm. had voted in um by definition what we had said is that this country is too small for you and you need to go so we can grow and prosper prosper that's what we said when we voted for Brexit. And I believe that fundamentally. This idea that seems to be traveling the world over. I mean, I noticed it when I was in Southeast Asia with Dutarte, who is a very, very fascist right-wing fundamentalist. I think, I believe he, I don't even know if I can say this, but I believe he called President Obama a motherfucker or something. Like that's the kind of mm-hmm. level of like mentalness that we're talking about in Southeast Asia. So that's there. And then you go to Putin, who's kind of a strong man in the least kind of most offensive way of putting it. You come to the UK and you've got Nigel Farage and Brexit. And now we've got Trump in America. This seems to be like this swathe of xenophobic, right-wing, right-leaning, in, in kind of inward-looking isolationism going on all over the world. And as a refugee, as a as a minority group I just I I lament I'm sad I just I don't understand what we are allowing to what what is being said about me so so wait I'm gonna leave New York in a couple of days does that mean that when I come back I have to be vetted because I'm a Muslim do I have to sign a piece of paper that says I'm not gonna hurt you I don't know. I wish I had an answer for you. I I dearly hope not. I'm not really sure about anything. <laughs> I don't have any good answers right now. <laughs> I think nobody does, but I find that so sad that you wouldn't that that America America would need me to sign a piece of paper that says, "Don't worry, I'm Muslim, but I promise I'm not going to hurt you." That's I mean, let's put this into context. I, I could not have seen this coming. I could not. Ha- I did not see this coming. This kind of wave of xenophobia that's kind of erupted. And, you know, I just I, I really hope that 
that we don't get disheartened by it, but we can actually, like you said, when you sat down on that chair, that you've been activated, that you kind of have this Mm -hmm. compulsion or this need to be like, okay, we've allowed this to happen. How do we spend the next four years challenging that viewpoint, making sure that there is a counter-narrative that's strong and robust and that could come back to anyone who says Mexicans are the problem? Um, With hard facts and reality, the one thing America needs desperately, the one thing that Europe needs desperately is a counter-narrative that can stand up to the hate speech and be like, no, I refuse. And what's your, what do you see your role being in that? I mean, you're such a, you're an important journalist in that community to me from what I've seen. I, I think for my, I mean, I'm not necessarily politically oriented, although I seem to consume it in, in unhealthy amounts. Um, for me, what I want to do is bring the world to the doorstep of the West and be like, whatever terribleness or goodness is happening over there in Congo, in mm-hmm. Vietnam, in Zimbabwe is directly affected by us. And certainly in the traffickers series, what you'll see is how we are culpable in these kind of situations. When we're talking about black markets and when we're talking about illegal goods being taken from one place to another, whether it's a woman for her body or a baby caught up in international adoption or a pangolin you know this tiny little creature no one's ever heard of the most trafficked mammal in the world um it's easy to say that oh no that's a problem over there Mm -hmm. and we're not affected but we are because we are complicit in that chain at some point take gold for example one of the episodes that we do that i investigate is about gold trafficking from colombia through to dubai and then out all over the world. Now, people who are listening right now, or you and I, you know, I'm wearing a ring around my finger that's gold. Mm -hmm. Um, You're wearing several bits of jewelry. One of them has silver. Some of it has gold. Mm -hmm. And, but we've both got smartphones out on the desk right now. That has gold in it. Oh, really? Yeah, 100%. Smartphones wouldn't work without gold. Well, mine barely works. The battery's horrible. (laughs) Well, you need some more gold in your smartphone. (laughs) Maybe that's Um, what I need. (laughs) You need to blink that baby up. Um, But cell phones wouldn't work without it, nor would your laptops and various other smart tools, um, I should say. But did you, would you be shocked if I told you that there is no way that you or Apple or Samsung or whoever else can guarantee that the gold used in your smartphone has not been tainted or taken out of the ground without influences of extortion or murder or rape? I would. I didn't know that. I would be shocked. There's no way to guarantee that. And there's a direct way that this black market that we feel to be so far removed from our day-to-day lives is in fact in our pockets the whole time. So when I find out about stuff like this, when my team and I look into these issues, that's the one thing that we're trying to do. We're trying to make the world feel connected, culpable, responsible, um, and to try to perhaps affect change by doing so. Where did the idea for the traffickers come from? Was that your pitch or someone else? It wasn't my pitch. It was the genius that is um, the Jonathan and Simon Chin working very closely with Fusion with um, the um, executive producers, including people like Keith Sumer, Danny Eilenberg, 
who just, their main thesis, their main aim was to look at the world in, look at the grey in between the black and white. That was what they wanted to do. And black markets offered the perfect opportunity. So what these guys really wanted to do was to ascertain how we are all living in the world that we live in and we seem to think we know it. I mean, you think you know New York City, but I bet there's a bit of you that really, if you thought about it, it's, it's, it's kind of like a box being opened up that, hold on, drugs are brought in and out of here all the time. Women for sex are brought in and out of here all the time. God knows what other illicit or contraband goods are brought in and out of here all the time. And this is happening in your city right now, in your village, in your town right now. Um, and you don't really think about it, but of course it is. Of course it is. Um, so we just thought it would be a phenomenal opportunity to kind of really explore it on the grandest of scales. I mean, this documentary series is a landmark documentary series because of the scope. I mean, we went to 22 countries. I went around the equator, the equivalent of five times around the equator. How long did it take you to film? Per- so we filmed for just under one year. Wow, I was on 22 countries in one year is very impressive. It's long. Um, and we, we, you know, we went, we traversed the world over. So um, the vegan gods would be very unhappy with my air mileage, <laughs> but I've, I've, I'm sure they'll forgive me somehow. So I assume you're a vegan. I am a vegan. Or yes. you just are close with the vegan gods. They speak to me now and then. No, I'm a vegan. I've been a vegan for just under three years. So you have such a positive attitude like for me to talk to you I feel I said to you like I haven't really had been in a great mood or laughed and talking to you is really uplifting and and fun how do you have how do you where do you get that positivity from I mean you're just you just talked about you did an eight-part series on trafficking and war refugees and all this stuff I mean like if my seamless order is late, I'm a grouch. Like, oh my god, is... wait, wait, oh my god, yes, then I'm a grouch. <laughs> um, I, I think fundamentally, Sam, I believe people are good. That's good. That's a good place to find energy. And I've I've traveled enough and been to enough places in the world, even before traffickers. I had, you know, I've done lots of work outside of the traffickers, and what I find is that. People are capable of bad and, and heinous and, and utterly atrocious acts. Um, I mean, I covered the Arab Spring, for goodness sake. I saw the horrors of authoritarianism and what it means to be young and stand up for what you believe in. But I think in my tiny, tiny experience in the last 28 years I've been on this earth, I think I truly believe that people are good. Um, and that knowledge gives me some kind of solace it gives me some kind of peace. And I'm whenever I'm having a down moment and, you know, making the traffic as I did have to go through therapy, I needed to talk it out. I, I, I just felt so overcome by sadness, by this burden. And I felt like I was witnessing horror after horror after horror. And I needed to talk it through. I needed to seek professional help. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not embarrassed or at all ashamed to admit that. Um, and... But, but but you come through the other side and you have to have that belief that actually things have, if you think about it on a grander scale, fewer women in the world are dying through childbirth. There are more girls and boys in education than ever before. 
mortality rates in wars and in conflict zones are the lowest they've ever been in the history of humanity. These are all truths and truths that must be remembered and celebrated. So I look to those kind of things and I'm just like, things are tough, but that's because we know more about things. That's true. So, you know, take a sigh, take a breath and then plod along, keep doing your thing, keep being fearless. And it will, you know, I, I just believe that i really do and so why don't you tell people where they can they can start watching traffickers they should have started watching it already by the time this episode airs yes but for people who haven't then they can either tune in on sundays at 10 o'clock on fusion or they can actually get a season pass on itunes right now it's available so first subscribe and review this show adulthood made easy and then go to the traffickers on itunes and get your season pass you've got it perfect There's no excuses not to listen to this. I don't think there's anyone else I would have wanted to talk to today. Talking to you has been... That's the sweetest thing anyone in America has said to me. (laughs) I'm so happy to be that person. But truly, I mean, you're such an inspiration and you've done so much at 28. And I hope we can all be as informed and activated and passionate and knowledgeable as you are. And certainly, hopefully, the listeners here will will watch your show. I have every faith that, you know, with things the way they are now, that it takes people like you, Sam, and like me and those people listening to do and care about one thing and actually get out there and action change. Make phone calls to your congressperson. Go and volunteer your time. That's so precious and valuable. Um, Try to write a blog. Do something. It will make you feel better at the very least. And at the very most, can can you imagine if you were part of that change? Um, So, yeah, I'm I'm excited for people to watch it and to feel that way. Well, like... Nell said the traffickers will be on every Sunday on Fusion or you can download it right now on iTunes. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of Adulthood Made Easy. If you have questions or topics you'd like me to cover in the future, just tweet them to me at Samzabel and I'll add them to my list. I'd like to thank our editor, Tim Einenkel, and our producers, Kristen Meinzer and Jordan Bell. I'm Sam Zabel and I'll see you next time. <laughs>